patrons, and welcome to the Alternate Timeline. This week, we are talking about the No Touching episode. Um, We're going to talk about my hunt for the most likely culprit of this theoretical disease um, and go down a couple of rabbit holes that I fell down during that research that I didn't end up using. Um, Then we're going to talk about the cool historical stuff from David's book about haptics that we did not have time for. Um, And then just a couple quick things about the book, which comes out officially on Tuesday, the 20th, like in two days. Um, And then as always, uh, our little wrap up and a secret. So onward. Okay. So when I first started uh, working on this episode, I actually did think it would be way easier to find some kind of touch-only disease. Um, I had kind of read about all the debates around whether coronavirus, this COVID was airborne. And so I figured like... That probably meant that obviously there was stuff that was just transmitted by touch if we're having that debate. Um, As you heard, it is way more complicated than that. I actually did a whole interview with an expert on fungal infections that I wound up not using because they are really only transmitted through the air. Um, But I am saving that interview for a future episode because I learned so many incredible things in it that I'm really excited to tell you about. Um, Stay tuned for some horrifying, amazing fungal facts. Um, Maybe I'll give you one now. Maybe I'll give you one now because I can't stop thinking about it. Okay. So one thing I learned is that compared to cold-blooded creatures like uh, fish or amphibians or reptiles, warm-blooded animals don't have usually nearly as many issues with deadly fungal infections. So if you've ever seen like planet Earth and you've seen the um, time lapse of the fungus eating the bugs from the inside out, all that stuff. Um, that happens mostly to cold blooded creatures. It doesn't happen to warm blooded creatures. And one theory for why that is, is that fungi really likes to live at a cooler temperature than the inside of most warm-blooded bodies. There's actually a theory that warm-blooded creatures evolved specifically to evade fungal infections. But in the last 10 years or so, the number of deadly fungal infections in warm-blooded species have skyrocketed, right? So you've probably heard of white-nose syndrome in bats. Um, That's one example. And then humans actually are suddenly being infected with these strains of fungi that used to be incredibly rare. So around, I think it was like 2009, researchers documented the first case of humans contracting something called candida in their bloodstream. And that is a fungal infection that kills 40% of the time when it gets into your blood. Um, And that was 2009. In just 10 years, there were suddenly documented cases of candida on literally every continent. And researchers first assumed that these fungal diseases or this particular fungal disease was spreading by plane or by transit routes. um, And that's how it ended up on every continent. But When they looked more closely at the infections, they were actually shocked to find that that was not the case. These infections were evolutionarily distant by thousands of years. So the the type that was infecting people in North America was totally different than the type infecting people in South America or Europe or Africa. Um, They're evolutionarily distant. Uh, And so that means that one species that is sort of highly pathogenic, highly resistant to all of our treatments, suddenly popped up in multiple places at the same time all over the world. Obviously, the next question is, why is this happening? And honestly, no one knows, right? Nobody knows exactly. But one theory is that as the planet has gotten warmer and warmer due to climate change, fungi have become more and more tolerant to higher temperatures, which means that they can now live inside human bodies easier. 
And this has obviously huge implications, not just for human health, but for animals and wildlife, all sorts of stuff. Frankly, it's terrifying. It's really hard to treat fungal infections because fungi are actually more closely related to us than they are to things like bacteria or viruses. So the things that kill fungi really effectively are also really bad for humans. Um, and so this is very scary. And uh, I have a ton of other things to say about it. I learned a ton from this researcher. And I will save the rest of my fungal facts until that episode. And we're still trying to kind of figure out what to do um, about fungus. Um, but so if you have any ideas, let me know. But um, I want to use that um, interview for something else. Um, the other rabbit hole that I fell down um, on this, sorry, I just realized that I maybe was not recording and had a um, little panic. But no, I am recording. We are recording this episode. The uh, prions. The thing I was talking about was prions. Um I mentioned them really briefly in the episode, um, but prions are a class of what's called neurodegenerative conditions. Um, they're basically a type of protein that can trigger normal proteins in the brain to start folding abnormally. Um, which is bad, very bad. Prions are absolutely terrifying for a couple of reasons. Um, the first one being that we really still have no way to treat them. We don't know how to make them stop. Um, and number two is that you can get them and not know it and live for decades and then they will suddenly show up and kill you. Um, prions are mostly found in animals and they are a huge problem for folks who work in animal husbandry. When I was doing research into this, um, most of the labs working on this are working in animals and not in humans. It's way more rare to find them in people, but it obviously does happen. Um, and one of the ways that it can happen is if a human consumes the meat of an animal that has a prion disease. So if you remember, there was the big mad cow disease scare in like the late 80s, 90s um, kind of situation. That was a prion disease, right? And during that scare, over 4 million cattle were slaughtered in an effort to contain the outbreak, and 177 people died after contracting the human form of um, the, the prion disease that normally infects cattle, and they got it through eating infected beef. Um, British beef was actually banned from export to all sorts of countries all over the world, and some of those bans actually stayed in place until as late as 2019, um, because you just really don't want to get this. You really don't want to get a prion disease. Um, we still know very, very little about prion diseases. Um, and the other sort of uh, sub rabbit hole that I fell down here is that there is a really interesting history behind the first prion disease that scientists encountered, uh, which is called Kuru. Um, Kuru was first encountered by Western scientists in 1957 in Papua New Guinea. Um, the word Kuru means to shiver from fever and cold in the local language foray. Um, now, I will say that like a lot of what you can find to read about Kuru has a really strong sort of like colonial scientist bent to it. Um, there is a book about the disease that was published in 2008 called The Collectors of Lost Souls, Turning Kuru Scientists into White Men. And it focuses pretty exclusively about how like brave and brilliant these white researchers were who went to Papua New Guinea. Um, and it's full of interesting information, but it has a very specific point of view. Um, Kuru is a prion disease that was spread through ritualistic cannibalism um, that involved eating the brains of family members after they died as part of the mortuary ceremonies that certain cultures in Papua New Guinea, certain communities would do. Um, researchers sort of realized that the families and communities who were continuing this practice, they were still getting Kuru and those who had stopped doing it were no longer getting the disease. And that's kind of how they figured out what was going on here. Kuru is the 
only prion disease in humans that we have basically eradicated by um, stopping this practice and stopping the consumption of human brains um, in this situation. Now, while I was reading about Kuru, um, and this is now a sub-sub rabbit hole, uh, and this is how you're getting a glimpse into like how my research process works, um, I was reading research papers from the teams who kind of worked on this and, and sort of figured this out, and I saw um, that there was a comment paper on one of them. And I find that it is always worth reading the comment papers Um Basically, like the rebuttal or the reply to um, the the paper itself, um, they can often give you a really interesting glimpse into sort of some of the academic drama behind the scenes of what's going on. And this particular response was from a guy named William Ahrens, um, and he was taking issue with how his own work was being described in a paper about Kuru. Um, and the tension here is really interesting because it comes back to this idea of cannibalism. So William Arends is a historian. Um, he wrote a book in 1979 called The Man-Eating Myth, Anthropology and Anthropophagy. I don't, I think that's how you say it, anthropophagy. Um, and his argument in his book is basically that <clears throat> archaeologists uh, in his era were way too obsessed with this idea that indigenous people were cannibals. Um, his book argues that, you know, like, yes, cannibalism did happen in some places, um, in certain conditions, for certain rituals. Uh, but he also argues that this picture that white anthropologists were painting that like all these tribes and all these people that they were encountering were these like vicious man eaters was um, a fantasy and a harmful fantasy at that. Um, in the book, he documents several examples of situations in which scientists took stories told by elders uh, like 100% literally when in fact they were speaking figuratively. Um, it's kind of like if you learned Greek mythology and you learned that Prometheus ate his liver and then you assumed that like all Greek people ate their livers as just sort of like a matter of course as part of the culture, right? That's not really how it works. Um, today, people sometimes say that Arendt's claimed that cannibalism did not exist and never happened. Um, that is not true. His book does very explicitly say that it did happen in some places. Um, and really, like his book wasn't about whether or not this was common or where exactly it happened and who did it, who didn't do it. But the book was more a question of like why white anthropologists seemed so excited by and quick to jump to this idea. Um, he doesn't like flat out say it in the book, but he's basically calling out racism in anthropology and the ways in which white folks have this like obsession with the most extreme othering version of a culture that they might encounter. Um, anyway, folks who study Kuru love to point to Arendt's book and kind of say like, aha, see, like you were wrong. We did. This is very clear evidence of cannibalism. And that's what the sort of researchers in this paper did. And that's what Arendt's was responding to. So that's like a third tier rabbit hole uh, of a rabbit hole of a rabbit hole. And none of that obviously made the episode because prions cannot be transmitted by touch. <laughs> um, I did find a paper that suggests that they could in some situations become airborne, which is not a fun thing to think about. Um, but I even emailed one prion researcher about this and about whether prions could be transmitted by contact. And his response was, quote, if they could, I'd be dead. <laughs> so... You don't have to worry about getting prions. Um, it's actually quite uh, rare to get them. So don't lose sleep over that. Uh, there are plenty of other things that are more dangerous. Okay, on to haptics. Um, so the main thing that I wanted to include in this bonus podcast from my conversation with Dr. David Parisi, um, who you heard in the episode talking about the history and future of haptics, um, is 
this thing about this experiment from the mid 1700s called Venus Electrifata or the Electrified Venus. Um, so this story starts in around 1730 when a physicist named George Matthias Bose invented a generator that you can charge with a crank. Um, and in order to demonstrate this generator, as you would do in this time period, right, you'd go around if you were a scientist and like show off your inventions. Um, he came up with a whole bunch of like basically party tricks. And his most famous one was this electrified Venus situation. So here is Dr. David Parisi explaining it. Uh, so in this experiment, this is like static electricity, basically. Uh, in this experiment, a woman stands on a wax pedestal. And this is, like, again, a, like a genteel like parlor game. Uh, and uh, an electrician, so someone who's basically trained at generating electricity, um, stands hidden from view and operates a static electricity generator. So basically turns a crank over and over again, builds up a static charge uh, in the woman. Uh, and the woman is supposed to lure a man over to her to try to kiss her on the lips. And as he approaches her, his lips get met with a violent shock, right? And the intensity of that shock increases depending on how much the electrician has cranked the electrostatic generator. Um, and so basically the goal here, if you're this, this is a, um, uh, the way I like to think about this is as a game, right? So you've pitted the electrician uh, and the woman against uh, against the man who's supposed to you know, come in and try to plant this kiss on her lips. Uh, and if the man can't plant the kiss on her lips, in other words, if the pain is so intense, um, he loses the game, right? So they're, they're sort of a team working against the man. Bose described this whole experience in a poem that goes like this. Once only, what temerity. I kissed Venus standing on pitch. It pained me to the quick. My lips trembled. My mouth quivered. My teeth almost broke. <laughs> I find this so weird and so funny because this is like a parlor game that you could play at rich people's houses, basically, which is incredibly weird. <laughs> um, but I mean, I guess they didn't have a lot to do those days. Um, okay, that is all the stuff that I cut from this episode. Uh, next week is officially the publication date for the Flash Forward book. I know many of you have already gotten a copy um, if you pre-ordered. And if you did pre-order, thank you. It really genuinely does make a huge difference. Um, I'm doing two official events so far, um, which you can find the links to at flashforwardpod.com slash book. Um, both of them, I think they don't require you to sign up in advance, but it would be really nice if you did because it gives the bookstore a sense of like how many people are coming and how much to promote it and like that people want to come. So um, for one of them, I'm talking to um, Matt Lipschansky, Julia Grafor, and um, Maki Naro um, about the book. And then for the other one, I am talking to Blue Del Quanti, Sophie Goldstein, and Amelia Onorato, um, who are all people who worked on the book, comics that are in the book. So I'm really excited to talk with them about the book and uh, I hope you come check it out. Um, I am really hoping to do something fun for you all particularly about the book. Um, but to be totally honest, I have not had time to actually plan it. Um, I know that that's bad. I know the book comes out in like two days, um, but I am in the middle of two really big other projects um, that have managed to do that thing. You know when you have like a bunch of work and you think you've planned it out such that they won't have deadlines on the same day, but of course like that never works out and somehow it man manages to like, just, you know, come out that like all the hard work has to be done for both of them at the same time. 
And so that has happened to me. So this month has been just like wall to wall on these two other projects, trying to just get things done so that I can, we can move into the next stage where I'm doing less. Um, and so I've just had like zero time to think about anything. Um, huge thanks to Julia Linus Goodman, who has kept the flash forward ship sailing. Um, they have made sure that everything continues to happen and they've been just like a total lifeline um, as I've been working on this other stuff. Um, and they are in fact working with me on these other projects too because they're great and I want them to work on everything. <laughs> um, so um, I am going to do something for you all. Um, I have an idea. I actually have started working on it um, and I'm hoping to kind of get that rolled out next month as kind of like a little surprise um, and I'll test it out on you all supporters first before I try it with any kind of bigger audience to sort of see how it goes. Um, and it should be really fun, I think. Um, I just like haven't had the time to put it together. So stay tuned for that. Um, and remember, if you want a book plate for the book, um, put your name and address in that form. I will link to it in the show notes for this. It also went out in the newsletter. Um, I'm going to mail the first batch out soon, so you should get them soon so you can put them in your little books. Um, and I will never, ever, ever tire of seeing your books, seeing pictures of your books in your house, in your hands, with your kids, with your dogs, their cats, like whatever it is. I love seeing pictures of the book out in the world. So please do send them to me. Um, they make me very happy. Okay. Okay, and then at the end, um, a little secret. So I got a new desk. I'm very excited about this. It seems like a small thing, but I do spend like 10 to 12 hours a day at my desk. Um, and I am currently working on the cheapest IKEA desk that I could buy about seven years ago. And I like just it's just literally like the largest surface I could find, and then these like telescoping legs that kind of don't work very well. Um, and I decided that. If I spend so much time at this desk, I should get a new one. So I got a new one. It is um, – this is like not SponCon. Like I know I'm not promoting it. I'm not, I don't even remember the name of the brand exactly. But it's like this modular one where you put it together and you can kind of customize. Like there's a standing part and a sitting part. And I'm really excited. So um, and when it comes, I'll put it together and I will show you pictures of it um, because I'm very excited to have like a good a good desk finally, <laughs> um, which I haven't had pretty much ever. Um but you know what? Like, this is the year that I'm going to have a good desk. I also bought a new office chair. Well, technically, it's a used office chair. Um, uh, turns out now is a really good time to get a used office chair because so many offices are liquidating and getting rid of all their office chairs. So I got a really nice used one um, for, like, way, way, way cheaper than um, a regular price. Anyway, I'm upgrading my office a little bit, which I'm very excited about. Um Okay, that's all for the bonus podcast this week. Uh, I hope that you are having a great week um, and I hope that you got the book and I hope that you send me pictures of the book and um, I will uh, talk to you all soon. Okay. <laughs>